So this morning, I would like to look at uh, a few different things. So the first one is uh, continuing a little uh, with this idea of anchoring and questioning experiential inquiry and how when we practice, we really are trying to cultivate the two of them together and also kind of cultivating some balance between the two. And so, of course, we can try to do this with the questioning, but also if we have other background and we use the breath and different things, we can also use that in terms of anchoring or in terms of questioning. So first, I want to read two quotes, which to me really show these uh, two basic things, two basic things. Uh, and this is an example uh, from the Zen tradition, the Korean Son tradition. And then, uh, do not worry about writing it down now, because I put uh, them, the two quotes, on the board, so you can look at them again later. So the first one. If one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. So here it's kind of looking at these two elements of anchoring, questioning, of calm, of brightness. So sometimes we associate meditation with just being calm. And so often we have this impression that the aim of the meditation is to be calm and in a way to stay there. But here what he's saying, if one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. So that's what we have to be careful. And that's what we need to balance these two elements of calmness, energy, stillness, brightness. So that, yes, we want to have some calm. Calm stability is really helpful. But by itself, we have to be careful that if there is just calm, and if we don't have much energy, it can veer into dullness. And so sometimes you might have that. Like, for example, if you use a breath, and then the breath has a way to calm, and you're already very tired, and then, oops. You see, we kind of might suddenly become a little kind of uh, sluggish, a little dull, and then, bringing the questioning could really help to brighten things up. So calm is an important element, but if there is just calm, we have to be careful how we can veer toward dullness, sluggishness, and then we'll need a little more energy. And if one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thought. So we point out we need enough calm so that we're not, in a way, we have the awareness, but then the awareness could just be kind of leading to a lot of possibly mental agitation. So you're bright, and I mean, uh, when I was in Korea, once I did a three-month retreat with the nuns, and they could not believe it, that I would never sleep on the cushion. So they would sit like this and poof, 
I mean, very quickly, they would kind of all be like that, and I would be like, oh. And so they finally, you know, came to me. They wanted to know, you know, my trick. You know, what, what, what was I doing not to fall asleep on the cushion? I said, I can't fall asleep. I have too many thoughts. So in a way, this is what he's pointing out, that if we don't have enough calm, very likely we will be taken over by the habitual thought. Because in a way, generally, there is this kind of like habitual thought which are relatively automatic and we generally easily go with them. So if there is just brightness without calm, then it could lead to have kind of like a little bit of you could nearly set too much energy toward the thinking process, for example. Then, the last point. If one is in a state of being neither aware nor calm, then one is not only entangled in thoughts, but also submerged by dullness. I mean, you might experience this time to time, and possibly more after lunch, often this is a state we can't find ourselves in. But I think what is also important to see that yes, it's good to have a balance between the two, and yes, it's generally more agreeable to have less thought and to be more calm, but also to acknowledge that at time, we cannot help it, that very likely we might be a little distracted for whatever reason, or we might be a little sleepy for whatever reason. So of course, we can help ourselves, but at the same time, I think there is also a part of, oh, right now I am distracted, but within this distracted thought, could I just sit there with the thought and like all things, at some point, it will pass. Or if you have like, you know, you feel really sleepy. So you start bright and then whoo, you feel a little sleepy. Then also accepting that state. And then at some point, generally that too will pass. So I think in a way, there is what I would call these two aspects to the creative awareness. One is acceptance. Let's see how long this lasts. And one is transformation. At what point do I need to do something about this? So I might, at some point, with the distraction, come back to the anchoring. If I really feel sleepy, I might want to straighten the back and open the eyes wide and just look up toward the ceiling and just ask a few times, who is sitting here? who is asking the question, who is breathing. And that might be enough to wake us up, and then we can come back to whatever anchor we choose. So I think it's kind of, when we do the meditation, we have in a way these two aspects. What is it I accept and wait for it to pass? Because naturally, generally, it will pass at some point. And at what point, in a way, do I do something with my help? to change it. Then the second quote, clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. But clear awareness with delusion will not work. So again, he's pointing out that 
it's not just a question of being aware. So we're not just trying to kind of, in a way, stare at reality. We're not just trying to become radars. But actually, it's a, a certain quality of awareness, which is, as I said yesterday, illuminated, illuminating. So the awareness has clarity to it, has brightness to it. So it's a certain quality of consciousness, of attention, of awareness. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate, but deep calm with absent-mindedness is not appropriate. So again, he's saying you could be calm, but that is that calm, is in the calm, do you have some brightness? Do you have some clarity? Or is a calm more leading to vagueness, or sometimes we could even say disassociation? So I could be calm, but it's kind of nearly like I would be in another state, and I would not really be in this multi-perspectival experience. Of course, certain practices in different religions help you to have that calm, even also in the Buddhist tradition. And it could be beneficial in some ways. But if we want to bring meditation in daily life, it seems to me that the calm we want to develop really has to be about being here in a very clear way. And so that's why it's saying yes to calm, but there must be some brightness within the calm. It must not be just vague and kind of not clear. And then it finished with, how can any delusion arise if calm doesn't let in any distraction and awareness doesn't leave any room for unskillful thinking? So here, of course, we cannot do this all the time. This is not like recipe. If you use all the ingredients, then 100% of the time, your meditation souffle will be perfect. No. We know with souffle, it depends. <laughs> be the same with meditation. But here is point out, how can any delusion arise if calm does not let it any distraction? So here what he's pointing out is a function of anchoring. That the function of anchoring is back to what I was explaining yesterday, to bring us back to the creative functioning. So we're not trying to stop the thought itself, the thinking process itself. But it's also in terms of what is the quality of the thought? What is it we are distracted by? Because in a way, I think there is a good difference between you sitting here and sometimes one of the things people do in meditation is what I call rumination. So you start, suddenly you hear, totally relatively fine, and suddenly you remember something bad somebody did to you. They said this, they did this, how terrible. Then you bring the pain of the past now, and then generally you jump into the future and then you plot revenge. You know, and I'll meet them and I'll get them, so very compassionate. 
activity in meditation. And so in a way to notice, do I need to do this? Can I leave the past where it is? Can I learn from it, but can I leave it there? In the future, they're not going to say what I programmed for them to say, so it's not going to work. And also it's a bit vengeful, which is a little uncompassionate. So in a way, it's kind of looking at the quality. It's kind of the Buddha saying, in a way, the more you think vengeful thought, you're more likely that's where you're going to go. But if you can bring it back to the only thing you can do is cultivate now, and then that will help you to meet the person then, then you have the calm. And so the calm is not for us to be calm, but the calm really helps the anchoring in terms of the, what I was talking about yesterday, the choice, having the choice. And this is sometimes, you know, uh, I don't know if that you have that experience, you have to write an email and it's a little, you have to say something a little, something. So what I do if I have, I don't have often to do this, but when I have to do this, first time I think about the email, and generally it's a little nasty, you know. Dun, dun, dun. So then I do second time, it gets a little softer. And generally by the fourth, I think, yes, that's the right way to say this. And I think this is a little about that, that by anchoring, by coming back, then we can have the creative functioning instead of, in a way, feeding kind of what is going to be harmful, what is going to be uh, confusing. And then it says also, and awareness doesn't leave any room for unskillful thinking. So in a way, the two really go together. Because in a way, the calm is what will kind of dissolve the power of the thought. And the clarity, the awareness, is what is going to distinguish the type of thought. Because sometimes, you sit in meditation, and you actually are going to have a creative thought, which is totally fine. And then you might go on with it. I know for myself, when I was uh, sitting in Korea, after 10 hours a day, Generally, by the end of the day, I really had lots of pain. And so sometimes I just was with the pain, and mm, it was difficult and very long. And sometimes I could go inside the pain, and then I experienced kind of like the emptiness of the pain. And so I kind of had this awareness, which was clear, and then I could see something. And so there is what I would call meditative, creative thinking. You could see something very clearly that you have never seen that way before, that we, you never thought that way before. And so generally it has its own creativity, so you think a little about it. And then at one point the creativity goes. And then it's more about, I must remember this, tell all my friend about it, I'm going to write a book about this or whatever. Generally let it be. So you know, it's kind of like with the awareness to see, oh yeah, this is a creative thought. But with the awareness, you can see, oh, this is a vengeful thought. Is it where I want to go? Or 
different kind of thought we might go. I mean, one of the things we can go into, you have an unpleasant feeling to it, and suddenly it's like you go into what I call this poor me, poor me thing, you know? Uh, so you kind of have a little thought, and within five minutes you are in a really unpleasant place. It's a bit like if, you know, you're waiting for somebody. Nine o'clock, they're not there. Ten past nine, he or she doesn't love me. Nine twenty, nobody loves me. Nine thirty, I hate the world. I mean, nowadays we can phone and say, you know, what's going on? But just to see how a thought could lead us, and in a way, do you want to go there? So that's where the awareness is for. So what we're trying to do when we practice is really cultivate the two together, the anchoring and the brightness. And so we can do it with the questioning, of course, but you also can help yourself with the breath. And also, one method which is also mentioned in the text, in the Korean song tradition, and it's associated with the Bodhisattva of compassion, and I was talking about that yesterday, and this is listening. And so one thing we could bring uh, to our practice today is listening meditation. And then we could do listening meditation for itself. What I mean is that we could put the sound in the foreground and then everything else in the background. Or we, we could do what I call stacking up is that you could have, for example, the question in the foreground, just behind it, a bit of listening, and then the rest in the background. And personally, I found that very, that if I do this as a questioning, with a little bit of this listening to the sound together, I have the impression I am more embedded in a questioning way in this experience. So in terms of the first looking at the listening meditation, listening meditation is not a scientific analysis, so it's not a listing. You're not sitting there, okay, I heard the bird, now I hear this, now I hear that. That's not the idea. It's just using listening, the sound, as an anchor. And then you can use that in two ways. One, you can be more, and that's really about you could say just sitting, trustless awareness. You're just aware of the space in which the sound happened. Or, which is more what I do, is to be aware of the most prominent sound. So generally, it's not like you're sitting there, what is the most prominent sound? And then I'll go there, by then it's gone. It's more where your attention goes. So I sit here, at time I hear more a bird. Next, I might hear a cough. Next, I might hear a strange sound. I don't know what it is. That's an interesting one. And so when we do listening meditation, we really try to listen to the sound for itself. And as much as we can, not go into commenting on the sound. Of course, we'll generally will have perception. So as soon as we hear a sound, we know what it is. I hear a sound, I know it's a bird. 
But we're not trying to name birds. We try more to be with the sound itself. And that's why when there is a sound, we don't know what it is, it's wonderful. Because we see how much perception wants to know. We are a meaning-making machine, I want to know what it is. And we think, is it inside, is it outside, what's going on? But can we stay there, just listening to the sound? So as we listen to the sound, then again, we can see how they arise, they pass away. We can also see if a sound continues, how it changes within itself. So if you want, you can just do listening meditation. And we're listening to the music of life. Or, and personally that's why I do a lot, is doing the stacking up, that in the foreground, I continue with the questioning, the questioning very much within the body, kind of trying to have kind of embedded the question not floating, but what is this? So the whole body and mind asking the question, but not in a tense way. And at the same time, a little bit of bringing some listening with it. So we feel more embedded in the experience and then everything else in the background. And so for you to see, if that could be a useful way to do it. Also to see that if you're more used to do the breath, you could be with the breath, then be with the sound, then back to the breath. Again, this is something which complement each other. Again, you can be with the breath and then time to time, you can drop the question or you can be with the sound, just listening and then just time to time dropping the question. So seeing, to really see that on a retreat, we're really trying to explore. So explore, of course, in terms of the posture, explore in terms of the method, to see what works, what doesn't work. And then when we do the walking meditation, so we walk together, then again, as we walk, we can continue with the question, what is this? Or we can continue with the question, what is this in, in terms of the rhythm of walking, with a little bit of the sound stuck up behind it. And then what's fun, unless you get obsessed with it, you might not want to, is the, our shuffling on the carpet. It's a wonderful kind of piece of music, you could say. But of course, there is also the sound outside. So there can be many different sounds. So that's what I wanted to suggest. Are there any questions about this? Or any question about the meditation or the walking? So if there is no question, I'll just say just a few words. And then this is about something which is very important uh, in the Korean song tradition. And this is a notion of effortless effort. And this, I think, is something that also retreat is about. 
because there is a difference between, in a way, sitting every day for 10, 20, 30 minutes or more, and the kind of effort we will bring to that, and the effort we have to bring on a retreat, because then you sit throughout the day, and then you do that day after days. And so, in a way, this is something, we have a strange relationship with effort, that generally we think we really put in effort if we get the effect. So often we mix effort and effect. And so we have to be a little careful about that. The, to see that, bec that we try and do something and we don't seem to get the effect doesn't mean we are not trying. I think it's very important. Another thing is that we often, when we put in effort, for us it means that we tense. Because our notion of efforting is generally the whole body and mind is tensing. And so we really have to be careful of that. And at the same time, if we don't put enough effort, we're just like, I mean, you can see uh, one a good example is that, you know, uh, if you're in front of the TV, for example, you're in front of the TV, which is a bit like what we're doing, but here you watch the inner TV. And then generally, we don't just sit like that in front of the TV. We kind of go like this, we go like that, and then we kind of, you know, end up different posture. And here, just to sit still, just to sit still, we need to have a certain effort. If we don't have enough effort, we slouch, which is also good. If we have too much effort, then we are, we're too upright. So in a way, it's kind of finding a comfortable posture with the body, but also with the mind. And that's where the, sometimes I find that, you know, I find myself sitting there and actually I'm like, I'm clenching my jaw to question better. So we have to be, and so generally I relax. So finding effortless effort. And at the same time, it cannot be the same effortless effort all the time. Because at times we have more energy, at other times we have less energy. And so that's also something, sometimes we need to bring a little bit more energy to kind of, so there is more brightness, and that sometimes we need to bring a little more of that relaxation. So I think this is something to do with the body, but also with the mind. How am I trying? Because sometimes it feels like the meditation happens by itself, and that's really feel like effortless effort. But this cannot be like that all the time. And then at other time it's like, mm, I have to kind of give a little more. You know, it's kind of like if you're on an incline, then, you know, you just kind of, if you cycle near us, we have this cycling path on the railway. So it's fairly flat, but it's not always flat, actually. You know, sometimes you realize, oh, I don't have to do much. And sometimes you realize, oh, no, no, here, I, it's going up. It doesn't look like it's going up, but you have to pedal much more. And I think it's a little bit like that with the meditation, that sometimes we just let it happen. And sometimes we have to bring a little more activity, but within that, can we also have the effortless effort? So, so now we have the walking meditation. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.